0: Welcome to Conservation Conversations, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, global trends, and the future of biodiversity conservation with some of the world's leading experts. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, President and CEO of NatureServe, where we've been working for 50 years to protect endangered species and ecosystems. With this podcast, we want to introduce our audience to some of today's key players in conservation and share the amazing work being done around the globe to protect our planet's rich biodiversity. Welcome to Conservation Conversations with Sean O'Brien. I am fortunate to be here today with Andrea Wolfe, an award-winning author of six acclaimed books, including Founding Gardeners and The Invention of Nature, which were both New York Times bestsellers. Uh, In addition to The Invention of Nature, a personal favorite of mine is uh, Chasing Venus, about the transit of Venus across the sun in the mid-1700s which allowed for the first accurate calculation of the size of the solar system. But the part that, of course, really appealed to me was all of the adventures that it took to make that happen in that time period. And uh, I remember when the transit of Venus was happening recently and uh, it was cloudy where I was. And so I had great sympathy for the poor people who spent years trying to get in place to watch the transit back then. um, I didn't have anywhere near the trauma they had, but um, it was still exciting. So thank you for being here andrea we look really looking forward to this conversation
1: thank you for having me well i i am glad that you also like chasing venus i i went to i went to arizona to watch it because i thought i cannot write a book about this and then miss it um right. and I, that was the only place in the in the whole of the us where it was um Visible and there was a 93% um, chance of sunshine. So uh, I actually did see it, it was quite exciting uh,
0: That was that was a smart move. Yes It was very cloudy where I was and lots of people out with telescopes with nothing to see <laughs> Horrible yeah. um, Well, one of the things I'm interested in because the topics of your books are so personally interesting to me that um, Just sort of feels like you're you're writing for me um How did, as a historian, how did you get interested in these topics? And in particular, because, as you've said in the book, um, Humboldt sort of fell off the radar for most people. Like, how did he rise to the level where you said, I need to write a book about Alexander von Humboldt?
1: Well, uh, actually, so... Let me go backwards. So so all my books, I think, although they're kind of different, but well, they're they're all the common thread between them is the relationship between humankind and nature. That's really what interests me. Um, and I'm interested in history because I believe that a lot of the things who we are, how we are today, are based on what happened in the past. So I'm interested in finding out what is the moment when something shifted. Um, and when something became something different and that made us who we are today. so that that is that's the beginning in a way. And, and I ended up writing these books about the relationship between humankind and nature because i'm I'm very outdoorsy I you know I love nature and um, and it was it was like the best way of finding a job that um, you know allowed me to do the two things that I like the most, which is writing and you know being in nature. And so all these books, At some stage in all these books, Humboldt somewhere popped up. Um, The reason for that is that although he is forgotten today, he was so prolific at his time that he basically had the fingers in every single pie. So, uh, except of chasing Venus because he wasn't born there. But when I wrote The Founding Gardeners, for example, that was really the moment where I decided that I need to write about Humboldt because I wrote a chapter about Humboldt meeting James Madison. And Thomas Jefferson in 1804, which is when Humboldt was on his return journey from his trip from South America, at a time when basically a traveller could not quite call up but write a letter to Washington, say, "Hi, you know, well, I like to hang out with the president. I have some information about stuff from South America. Would you like to see me?" And Jefferson was like, "Yes, please come. You have so much information about Mexico. I'm quite interested in that." But anyway, so Humboldt arrived. And um, came with these new ideas about nature as this interconnected whole. And so I became absolutely fascinated about this because I thought, like, oh my God, here is someone who really invented the way we understand nature today. And I had not, I mean, I'd heard about him because I'm German, I had heard about him, but not really in great detail. And so I wrote this chapter about him meeting the founding fathers to only be then be told by my editor that that was a great chapter but that has nothing to do with the book so we deleted it or I deleted it so it never made it into the founding gardeners but that was the nucleus of the invention of nature that's when I thought I want to write about this guy and then I wrote I actually wrote Chasing Venus in between because I had the transit of Venus which came up when 2012 but before that I had done some research about Humboldt and I knew I'm going to write about him Um, but it was a book that just took a very very long time because you had to do well I had to do a lot of research in different archives but also I had to travel to South America and follow his footsteps so that took a little while
0: well, I think that that there's so many things that I want to respond to in there. Um, and one of them being, you know, you are saying that it took a long time to write, not the least of which is because he was such a prolific writer himself and just trying to get through everything that he wrote. And as I've heard you say before, his handwriting was atrocious. Uh, so that must have been a challenge all in itself. To, and then well, to see, consolidate I, I, that in your brain.
1: It, well, it's not because I'm. I'm also a bit of a nut, so I have a database. You know, and every, like all my writer friends laugh about me when you know everybody thinks I'm like a writer. You are kissed by the muse, and you know it's always so creative. But it's a lot of scientific. I mean, it's a lot of you know factual work. So I have a database, and then I take all the diary entries all the letters are transcribed so it just takes a very very long time to do that but once you have that in that beautiful database you can kind of keyword it and then you can you know you can type in i don't know deforestation south america humboldt and then you, i get i get all the letters that he wrote Uh, about this and I can order them chronologically and so that that's the beauty then so I don't have to hold it all in my head because there's no way I could because there's so much stuff I you know I found in an archive say four or five years earlier so when it comes to writing I can't remember that anymore um, because I am not Alexander von (laughs) Humboldt
0: who did seem to have quite the memory Uh, that's actually really fascinating to hear about your um, your method because I think probably a lot of people don't realize just how important it is to have that sort of database that you can refer to, especially if you're writing about something as complex, complex as this. Um, you also talked about your, your passions of, of writing and nature and exploring. And um, one of the things that you've talked about is sort of the disconnect today between sort of passion and emotion and science. And I I feel privileged to work in the environmental world, in the conservation world, because there is that passion. And I get to work with scientists who get to express the passion that they have for their subject and don't have to just sort of do an analysis and talk about the R-squareds and things like that. Uh, And so I went into this field because I wanted to be able to work in the conservation field. And it was an an emotional thing for me. And I wanted to understand the scientific process and the scientific method. And so I went through the process of getting the the degree, but um, it was never my intention to be a scientist in that way, but to actually use the science to express the the beauty of nature. So I really, uh, that resonates with me that you were able to do that as well.
1: Well, I think it's, I mean, I would, I would say actually most people, if they're really honest to themselves, have that. It's just, it's been, it's just like been forbidden in a way. You know, if you do scientific work and, you know, it's not emotional, it's not passionate, but I, I my guess is that most scientists, um, Went into this work because they have a love for nature. You know, they have. You know, there's there's this kind of deep sense of curiosity how the world works. And in a funny sort of way, I think that's the same that drives artists. You know, they 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 might have different methods, but the goal is the same: to make sense of the world around us. And and it's if you think about it, it's a very recent distinction. This distinction between the arts and the sciences. Um, Think of someone like Leonardo da Vinci, for example, he's a polymath who was interested in uh, engineering, but also, you know, was doing amazing drawings, Um, he's interested in botany, mathematics, or if you take Goethe, the German poet, he he had a rock collection of 18,000 specimens but he's also Germany's greatest poet, and of course, Alexander von Humboldt was was an amazing artist. I mean, he has he returned from his from his expedition with hundreds and hundreds of drawings. And uh, your background of the yes, natural exactly. leader that is a, that's of course it's an engraving, but it's based on a drawing that he did in the foothills um, of the Andes, which is today actually in a in a museum in Bogotá, and is absolutely stunning. So. So I think this distinction we have today is, first of all, I think is really wrong. And I think it's something that's imposed on us already as children, you know, in our education system, we've already put six year olds into these boxes of scientific, logical or artistic, mm-hmm. uh, creative. So I was always put in this box creative artistic and i'm pretty sure my science teachers would turn in their graves that you know i'm daring to write about a scientist because i was really not good at the sciences uh, because i think i was taught wrongly and i was always you know given this idea like you either like the arts or you like the sciences and uh, and i think in the environmental um it's one I, I would actually say it's one of the very few areas um, where where people do you talk about their emotional response to nature?
0: Yeah, I think and, that's right. And,
1: and I think it's important because in the end of the day, we're only going to protect what we love. So we need to make people fall in love with nature. There's no way around it. If we want them to protect nature, you have to talk about the wonder of nature in a way. And we have to just dare doing that and not be embarrassed about it.
0: Yeah. As you were saying, the, um, the, the wonder of it all and the passion... It has to be there and this sort of the disconnect is is definitely real, you know, when people study to get a PhD in a field, they do that at the exclusion of everything else and the importance, especially nowadays of having a broader understanding of things, because as we know, and as uh, Humboldt taught us, everything is interconnected. And understanding the physics of the atmosphere or the, and the chemistry of the ocean at the same time as the ecology of the rainforest turns out to be wildly important, right? You need to understand that dust from the Sahara travels through the atmosphere and comes over to the Amazon, and that's part of the reason that the whole system works. And so, but
1: well, yeah, having I, a, I, I, and in a way, I think it's we need imagination to actually come up with these incredible connections, you know, because we've been we've learned so much to just categorize that. Um, I I, read, I recently read this amazing book, The Entangled Life by Merlin, um, Merlin Sheldrick, which is all about the fungi and uh, and the fungal systems. And you literally have to stop thinking in the categories you have thought before to actually make sense of all this. And that's the beauty about imagination because it allows you to just explode out of these, these categories we've been kind of pressed in and, and I think, in a way, that's what I've thats what I've always loved about Humboldt, that he, you know, on the, on the one hand, he schleps his 42 scientific instruments up and down the Andes. So he's totally data-obsessed, um, and measuring is so important for him. But at the same time, he has no problems whatsoever to talk about the wonder of nature, and that, you know, you have to inspire... Um, love for nature so and i I, you know that's what i like that you know you don't have to be like some esoteric weird person um to to feel this love but you don't have to be like a super nerdy scientist to just to tell the truth you know there's something there's something in between which might actually help us a little bit more to you know sort out this planet a little
0: yeah Uh, so one of the things you talked about was science communications and of course Humboldt worked on that, and you've been an amazing contributor to that. And there's been a number of other efforts over the years recently, especially to sort of bring science to a broader audience, which has been really, really wonderful. All sorts of different books and novels and things that are trying to sort of help us with that connection to to nature. Uh, we're actually uh, part of the reason that we're talking today is that NatureServe is starting a uh, an, a new adventure um and i've we're we're getting ready to head out into the the wilds of the united states and canada to visit with natural heritage programs to try and help people make that connection to nature right here in the backyard in the united states and uh, we're referring to this as the van humboldt tour because i will be traveling around in a converted camper van to visit with these natural heritage programs and through Social media and through other mechanisms um, try and express some of the wonder and the delight that is scientists on the ground uh looking at looking at nature and talking about threatened and endangered species. And uh I have to tell you that the the van has the word Van Humboldt on the front. And the minute I drove it out of the garage where it was being converted, somebody stopped me and said, Have you read The Invention of Nature? <laughs> <laughs> it's I'm all kidding. about Von Humboldt and is this some, something you're doing in in homage to Alexander von Humboldt? And I was like in fact it is. So um I was quite pleased with that moment and uh, I thought uh, you would yeah, like it. That's that's
1: amazing. But so, so what but I mean when did you decide, I mean there's so, I mean obviously I'm so pleased that there's going to be a van driving around the US called Van Humboldt but why why did you decide to call it Van Humboldt?
0: It really was because of your book. Um, when I, I had heard of Humboldt before, because I've read a lot about uh, adventurers in South America, and he's of course one of the one of the greats in that category. Um, and I was aware of his scientific contributions, but your book was really inspiring in that sort of connection between emotion and nature. And you talk about it explicitly in the book. And so as we were thinking about the work that NatureServe does and how we are data and science nerds and we're a lot of scientists and we're really like we really get into the data. But the reason that we all came to the, working at NatureServe is because of our passion for nature and our love for the natural world. And so we realized that to tell our story of what it is that we do in trying to preserve threatened and endangered species and ecosystems, we need a better storytelling mechanism. And a great way to tell a story is to go out into the field with scientists who are the world's leading expert in some species or taxon and get them to tell why they care about that and to show in in real time you know, what's going on. And so um, because NatureServe has a network all across the United States and Canada of natural heritage and conservation data center programs we are able to travel around and have these visits. And even in this time, because we're going to be outside, we can do it in a, in a safe fashion and uh, and tell this story. And so we're super excited to, to tell this story. And I wanted, in thinking about this, to be able to really honor the role that von Humboldt played in sort of, as you said, the invention of nature and how things are interconnected, because that is definitely we how we see things. You know, the threatened and endangered species, it's related to climate change. It's related to habitat fragmentation. It's related to land use policies and it's all interconnected. And so I think and also thinking back to some of the things that he wrote about, you know, changing the landscape was changing the local climate. And that was affecting diversity in specific areas. I mean, he saw that 200 years ago and it's amazing and really inspiring. So. We're really excited. I, I refer to it as you know Van Humboldt, the NatureServe Explorer, and uh, we're, we're we're launching actually just before this this episode will go live on the on the web.
1: Well, I, I think it's great, and I think you know it, 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 Humboldt is in in different aspects very relevant to 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 what you're trying to do but also he was a great science communicator uh, he was a great com- he was a great publicist actually um so he goes on his um on his exploration uh, so he leaves in 1799 and he spends five years um or almost five years in south america and as he so we imagine this explorer today, maybe as he's just in the middle of nowhere, but you know, he, he'd go on these trips, but then he'd stop in big cities like Quito or um, Caracas or Catagena. So, And he could send letters from, from there to to his friends at home. And uh, so he'd write these long letters describing in great detail all the adventures he had um experience and then he would end the letter saying like and by the way you can send this letter to a newspaper um Mm -hmm. which they would do so by the time he returned in 1804 he was a superstar because the whole world including thomas jefferson um and james madison had read about his adventure so he was a great science communicator he also understood that it's not you know you discover something but that might not be that interesting for the for the general reader like the tiny little details so he wrote these books for the general audience which are they're brilliant books they are they're really i think the the blueprint of nature writing today so because he combined scientific observations with very poetic landscape descriptions so he's not he's really not afraid of lyricism they're very very poetic but what he did is he then had at the end of each chapter he had his end notes for the, and the end notes are actually much longer than the actual chapter. But if you're not interested in those, you could just read the, you know, the, the pretty writing in the chapter, the kind of the nature writing, his adventures and stuff like that. But then the end notes are fascinating too, because there are these nuggets of knowledge in there. So you can dip Deep if you wanted to, but you don't have to. And I think that's a great way of communicating. And 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 his his mind, I think his his story, he's he's a great storyteller, but also he he doesn't just tell a story in a linear way. He, his mind goes really in all directions. And um in And I think that's great for storytelling, too, because everybody can, you know, walk down certain avenues. And when you look at his manuscripts, for me, that was just so fascinating. They are these, um, I have no idea how he made any sense out of his notes but (laughs) that he's so you know he writes stuff down in a sheet of paper and then he has a few more ideas and he writes it down this corner and this corner and then it's all completely full and then he takes these little bits of paper and he writes more and he sticks them all on top of each other so it's this multi-layered collage of thoughts with no i mean there's no linear order in there but it's all connected you mm. know just as he sees nature it's all connected it's this web because I mean, we haven't really talked about this but he he of course doesn't invent nature but he invents the way we understand nature he's really the one who says this is all one big living organism everything's connected from the tiniest Insect to the tallest tree, everything hangs together. And he writes a book which he considers calling Gaia. Um, yeah, he then yeah. calls it Cosmos, but he considers Gaia as, as a name, which I think is to be. And, so, and he, he does foreshadow a lot of the stuff that James Lack, Lovelock then comes up with in, in his Gaia theory. Mm-hmm. So. But he Humboldt does this at a time when other scientists are really—I mean, this is the great age of classification. This is what they're interested in, you know, taxonomy. You know, how can you how can you put everything in these kind of very narrow categories? That's how you make sense of nature. You kind of impose this corset mm. upon nature. And Humboldt just tests this apart and says, no, 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 no. Everything is globally connected. So he comes up. He's really the very first to talk about global vegetation zones. Um, and he draws them with, you know, he he has these maps and he draws them. So you suddenly see these kind of wavy bands of vegetation mm-hmm. zones across the globe, which is very different to putting like temperatures, you know, into like tables. So he, he, right. he expresses this graphically. That's a way of storytelling. You know,
0: I love the, I love his illustrations and his drawings and um, I remember you once said that maybe he was the creator of the first infographic
1: which well, of course I is think that the, the, what you have behind you I think no. that is the very first infographic because the little the little lines on the on the mountain this is Chimborazo actually in cross section are all the plants he found drawn into the mountain according to the altitude and then when you see the full thing to the left and to the right, you have these columns where he has all kinds of scientific data. And what you can do is you can trace this um, line across there and you get all the data there is for one altitude. So it's so simple. It's packed with scientific data. It's so easy to understand. You don't need a PhD to understand this. Right. It's very, very obvious what's happening there.
0: Yeah, it's and it's fantastic in thinking about this science communications and the importance of doing it because you know, as we get deeper and deeper, we do actually understand at a level that is challenging. You know, we're, we're now at the place where we're understanding species at the genetic level and being able to sort of split things into even smaller and smaller categories as we categorize things. But we need to be able to tell that story in a bigger way that, that resonates. As you said, we are only going to protect the things that we love. And so we need to not try and, reduce everything down to you know the tiniest bit and the tiniest atom we need to understand that but we also need to be able to tell stories like humboldt was able to do and like you've been able to do in your books
1: well i think it's it's that it's that idea of the the macro and the micro level isn't it i mean you know the one does not have to exclude the other uh and i I think one of the things that Humboldt was great at doing, but also Charles Darwin was this kind of zooming out and zooming in, you know, like being obsessed about something really, really small and detailed and taking that and developing from that a bigger idea about something global, but also having all these little things in your head and then zooming out and saying like, how how can this all somehow hang together?
0: Yeah. So shifting gears a tiny bit. um, These days, we talk a lot about ecosystem services and nature's contributions to humanity or to humankind. And part of that talk talks about um, indigenous cultures and the role that indigenous people play in understanding nature, but also their role in nature. And uh, one of the things I think is really inspiring and wonderful about Humboldt is his respect for indigenous people and indigenous culture. And I just wanted to invite you to talk a little bit about that aspect of him.
1: Well, I think what so, so he is an, you know, basically an 18th, late 18th century, early 19th century explorer who travels as a private person. So I think that's a big difference. So he's not, he's not, this exploration is not paid for by a king or a government. So he goes, you know, he pays for it. He basically comes back. He doesn't have any money left anymore. But what he does is he he therefore doesn't have a mandate to you know do something to, you know, Explore this or to exploit this, you know. He really travels just in the name of science, so he doesn't need to go and find like another silver mine to exploit someone. So I think we have to bear this in mind; it's something very different. And he, unlike I would say most Europeans at that time, does not see the indigenous people as savages or barbarians um, as the other Europeans. So he he travels with a with a very open mind through south america and then very quickly realizes that the indigenous people can provide him with knowledge that he can not get anywhere else they're his guide so he also doesn't travel with a huge entourage other victorian travelers sometimes have like a hundred porters humboldt doesn't do that he has you know has, has a few mules or few boats um normally four or three four five people kind of Local people who travel with him. That's a very very small team, and um, he like when you look at his diary. For example, you see there's a there's a page when he travels um, when he paddles along the Orinoco. There's a page of all the languages of the different t- tribes he has met along the Orinoco, and there are do- several dozens. Um so he lists that he he asked them about that, he 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 asked them about their words. So he he takes notes of their languages, but mostly he's interested in their knowledge about nature. And he actually says they are the best geographers he's ever met, the best observers of nature. And there's some wonderful little details. For example, he can't believe that there's one of his guides um, can distinguish 15 different types of trees by chewing on their bark. So of course, Humboldt has to try it and he, he, he spits them out and it just basically tastes all the same to him. So there's a, there's also a great admiration. And I would also argue that um, his way of understanding nature, so he comes back understanding nature as this living organism. And I just don't believe that this is not coming from talking to the indigenous people. This is just so much what he writes and, that, and it's so different to what other Western European um, philosophers are doing at the, at, and scientists are doing at the same time. I think it is definitely influenced by what he's seen in South America in combination with, uh, there's something happening in German philosophy at that time, um, and in Jena actually, where he meets Goethe, um, which is called Naturphilosophie, so nature philosophy, which is a philosophical system which, which for the first time talks about that everything is an organism that the, but it doesn't see nature as an organism but it sees that the self and the external world belongs together and Humboldt takes this nucleus of this idea he takes that to South America he then meets the indigenous people and I think something happens there and he applies it to the whole of nature so I th- I think the, the communication with the indigenous people for Humboldt was incredibly important, but we should not, I mean, he's not just, you know, I mean, he's a flawed personality. There are a couple of occasions uh, where, so one where he's along the Orinoco where he, he basically robs a grave where he goes and, you know, he takes these skeletons out of a grave. The, the indigenous people get, are, are, you know, understandably upset. And he goes, uh, why are they upset? You know, this is for the name in the name of science. But I think that's the only one, only big event where I can say like he completely oversteps, but most of the time he's very respectful. There's at some stage, he actually says there's no philosophical concept, abstract concept that cannot be expressed in the indigenous Languages, which is completely the opposite of what the Europeans are thinking at that time, because they basically think that you know these these are savages who can you know point at stuff. That's all they can do, um, right, and right. they eat each other. That's what Europeans um, think. And Homburg comes along, says like, no, no, no. They actually they yeah. are very sophisticated. They're very sophisticated concepts in their language and in their thinking.
0: Uh, this this is great. I could I could talk to you all day, um, and uh, but I know that you're um, working on another project and have other things that you need to to get to today, but this has been really, really interesting and really fascinating, and I really appreciate the conversation. One of the things that you've uh, said is that there's more things named after Humboldt than any other person, and I'm very happy to add one more to that (laughs) with the Van Humboldt. and I hope if you make it to the United States in the next year, um, you can come and see the Van Humboldt on the ground somewhere. We'll, uh, we'll meet up and go out into nature with some of the uh, NatureServe network scientists. And well, I cannot tell you
1: how much I would love that. I'm, that is the one thing I'm finding also very, very hard about the pandemic is that, you know, I'm stuck to one place, which I have not been doing for like many, many years. I've been traveling around. I've been meeting so many interesting people and it's quite hard. I mean it's nice that we can do this with our technology, but it's not quite the same as walking with you through one of the places and actually looking at biodiversity just rather than, you know, now I'm looking at this computer screen. It's very different.
0: As we did a few years ago at Montpelier when we walked through James Madison's Landmark Forest and saw biodiversity in person and Yeah, we're able to develop a a personal connection that is it is different than doing it this way. Um, So that's one of the reasons that this tour is exciting is we're going to be outside with people. Um, People are starting to get vaccinated. By the time this program is live, um, I will have had my second vaccination shot. So. Work uh, out then, the yeah,
1: in, in german the Germans always come up with new compound nouns there's a new there's a new German word just called impf night which is the jealousy of someone who's vaccinated <laughs>
0: <laughs> say the word again for
1: us impf night so imp inf is vaccination to be to be vaccinated and night is jealousy so it's the jealousy that someone else is um, vaccinated it's a big word here
0: <laughs> I'm sure it is and it's a big word here or a big concept here anyway. Um, So Andrea Wolf, thank you very much. Thank you for educating people about so many different topics over the years and for everything that you will write in the future. And thank you for talking with me today on Conservation Conversations.
1: Thank you and have a great trip in the fan, Humboldt.
0: Thank you very much. (laughs)